listening to the podcast 82488. Since they have written only for today, and guardedly, my story will speak out clearly and boldly. Perhaps on second thoughts, I shall not take the trouble to seal it up in a casket. I shall merely leave it lying about. For my experience as a historian is that more documents survive by chance than by intention. And that was a selection from today's novel. I, Claudius, by author Robert Graves. Page 8 The god laughed through her mouth in a lovely yet terrible sound. Ho, ho, ho. I made obeisance, turned hurriedly, and went stumbling away sprawling headlong down the first flight of broken stairs, cutting my forehead and knees, and so painfully out, the tremendous laughter pursuing me. Speaking now as a practiced diviner, a professional historian and a priest who has had opportunities of studying the syllabine books as regularized by Augustus, I can interpret the verses with some confidence. By the Punic curse, the Sibyl was referring plainly enough to the destruction of Carthage by us Romans. We have long been under a divine curse because of that. We swore friendship and protection to Carthage in the name of our principal gods, Apollo included. And then, jealous of her quick recovery from the disasters of the Second Punic War, we tricked her into fighting the Third Punic War and utterly destroyed her, massacring her inhabitants and sowing her fields with salt. The strings of the purse are the chief instruments of this curse, a money madness that has choked Rome ever since she destroyed her chief trade rival and made herself mistress of all the riches of the Mediterranean. With riches came sloth, greed, cruelty, dishonesty, cowardice, effeminacy, and every other unRoman vice. What the gift was that all desired but myself. And it came exactly ten years and fifty-three days later. You shall read it in due course. The lines about Claudius speaking clear puzzled me for years, but at last I think that I understand them. They are, I believe, an injunction to write the present work. When it is written, I shall treat it with a preservative fluid, seal it in a lead casket, and bury it deep in the ground somewhere for posterity to dig up and read. If my interpretation be correct, it will be found again some 1900 years hence. And then, when all other authors of today whose works survive, will seem to shuffle and stammer, since they have written only for today. And guardedly, my story will speak out clearly and boldly. Perhaps on second thoughts, I shall not take the trouble to seal it up in a casket. I shall merely leave it lying about. For my experience as a historian is that
that more documents survive by chance than by intention. Apollo has made the prophecy. Page 24. Inferior in looks and our senior by eight or nine years knew well how to feed his sensual appetite. Men such as Antony, real men, prefer the strange to the wholesome. Livia finished sententiously. They find maggoty green cheese more tasty than freshly pressed curds. Keep your maggots to yourself, Octavia flared at her. Livia herself dressed very richly and used the most expensive Asiatic perfumes, but she did not allow the least extravagance in her household, which she made a boast of running in old-fashioned Roman style. Her rules were plain but plentiful food, regular family worship, no hot baths after meals, constant work for everyone, and no waste. Everyone was not merely the slaves and freed men, but every member of the family. The unfortunate child, Julia, was expected to set an example of industry. She led a very weary life. She had a regular daily task of wool to card and spin, and cloth to weave, and needlework to do, and was made to rise from her hard bed at dawn, and even before dawn, in the winter months, to be able to get through it. And because her stepmother believed in a liberal education for girls, she was set, among other tasks, to learn the whole of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey by heart. Julia had also to keep a detailed diary for Livia's benefit of what work she did, what books she read, what conversations she had, and so on which was a great burden to her. She was allowed no friendships with men, though her beauty was much toasted. One young man of ancient family and irreproachable morals, a council's son, was bold enough to introduce himself to her one day at Baillet on some polite pretext, when she was taking the half-hour's walk allowed her by the seaside, accompanied only by her duenna. Livia, who was jealous of Julia's good looks and of Augustus's affection for her, had the young man sent a very strong letter telling him that he must never expect to hold public office under the father of the girl whose good name he had tried to besmirch by this unsufferable familiarity. Julia herself was punished by being forbidden to take her walk outside the grounds of the villa. About this time, Julia went quite bald. I do not know. Page 88. Hitherto from persuading Augustus to recall Tiberius, she wanted him to become as weary of inaction and public contumely as he had previously been of action and public honor. She sent back a brief message to say that she had his letter safe and that it was a bargain. A few months later, Lucius died mysteriously at Marseilles on his way to Spain, and while Augustus was still stunned by the shock, Livia began working on his feelings by saying how much she had missed the support of her dear son, Tiberius, 
all these years, for whose return she had not until now ventured to plead. He had certainly done wrong, but had also certainly learned his lesson by now, and his private letters to her breathed the greatest devotion and loyalty to Augustus. Gaius, who had endorsed that petition for his return, would, she urged, need a trustworthy colleague now that his brother was dead. One evening a fortune teller called Prasayas. One evening, one evening a fortune teller called Thrasyllus, by birth an Arab, came to Tiberius at his house on the promontory. He had been two or three times before, and had made a number of very encouraging predictions, but none of these had yet been fulfilled. Tiberius, growing skeptical, told his freedman that if Thrasyllus did not entirely satisfy him this time, he was to lose his footing on his way down the cliff. When Thrasyllus arrived, the first thing that Tiberius said was, what is the aspect of my stars today? Thrasyllus sat down and made very complicated astrological calculations with a piece of charcoal on the top of a stone table. At last he pronounced, they are in a most unusual favorable conjunction. The evil crisis, the evil crisis of your life is now finally passing. Henceforth, you are to enjoy nothing but good fortune. Excellent, said Tiberius dryly. And now what about your own? Thrasyllus made another set of calculations and then looked up in real or pretend terror. Great heavens, he exclaimed, an appalling danger threatens me from air and water. Any chance of circumventing it, asked Tiberius. I cannot say if I could survive the next twelve hours, my fortune would be, in its degree, as happy even as yours, but nearly the end. I, Claudius, by Robert Graves. Robert.